Hello, everyone. Welcome to Purple Nuna Podcast. I am Stephanie Conti, and I am here with the Guido to my car. No, the Carla to my Guido, Ooh. Savannah Lanause. Hey guys, Steph, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing very swell. How are you, my oh, little sweetie? <laughs> that's a good word. I like that. Um, woo, guys, we're celebrating today on Purple Noon because woo, Stephanie's woo, woo. short story hit number one and 30 mm-hmm. minutes for teen horror or teen woo, woo, something. Woo. And she's breaking records out here. Woo, woo, woo. (laughs) So, Steph, um, I think we should celebrate. But I also think we should talk about it a little bit before we get into eight and a half. So, uh, I'm going to ask you. And I did not plan for this to happen. Of course I did. Of course. I was like, can we we do an interview for me? Can we (laughs) do an So... So, yes, this was entirely not my idea at all. And for correction, I was number one, am, am, am number one on Amazon in new releases for 30-minute young adult and teen short stories. The longest category I believe Amazon has. That's still a good one. It's better than most of us. I mean, yeah. Who else has number one on Amazon that we know? Nobody. So um, I wish we knew them. Because <laughs> I could like Stephen King, Agatha Christie, which by the way, I'm in the like the same boat as them in terms of short story. So I'm like, you know, at least I'm being beaten by them. I'm not being beaten by like I don't know, some weird stuff, you know? Although I mm-hmm. will say the short story section on Amazon has nothing but erotic novels. So it's just oh, like if you go wow. on their top 100, you like scroll through like best selling, and then there I am at number 33. And what's <laughs> what's one through 32? Erotic novels. Wow. All right. I didn't know that. I will say it is an honor to be up there with them. It really is an honor at the end of the day. Well, I hope everybody will take a break from sinning and read your book. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding reading my book is probably still as sinful as reading those um for those of you who don't know i wrote a so it's called idol it is a horror slash suspense slash thrillery slash gloomy short story so steph um I think we should give everybody a little maybe like summary, nothing too in-depth, but just to, you know, let everybody be interested and give them a little uh, taste of what you wrote. So, yeah, of tell course, us a little bit course. about the summary. So, essentially, um, like I said, it's dark and gloomy. It's horror-y, but uh, the, a plot summary is it's about an American photographer living in South Korea and this character's life after, like, in the aftermath of what happens when this main character photographs this, you know, the suicide of a young K-pop star. Oof. Um, so one of the things I really like about your short story and um, not being biased at all just because you're my best friend. No, but um, seriously, I think you do a really good mix of psychological horror and also paranormal horror. You know, I, I've always thought to myself because people like will say like, oh, like I like gore. I like this. I like that. But to me, the scariest thing of all is being human. <laughs> not a successful one <laughs> being a non-successful human whether it's because of some crazy physical ailment or some crazy you know mental illness and stuff like that and of course I'm not downplaying on anything but that to me is yeah. what terrifies me especially in a horror setting yeah um my, the, the scariest horror movies or just stories to me are psychological ones because let's be honest if there's a ghost in the house you can leave. If someone's trying to kill yep. you, you can figure it out. But if it's just your mind. <laughs> you can figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can make a plan. Taekwondo, call the police, you know. That's what I'm options. saying. You could like home alone it or something. But like when it's psychological, that is so scary because you're basically fighting against your mind. So yeah. I like that you do mix those two, the paranormal and psychological elements together. Um, so what made, what, you know, 
What inspired this idea for Idol? So fun fact, it actually was not even a real bet, but <laughs> so my boyfriend for Christmas gave me this uh, a short story book by Junji Ito, who is known as like one of like the, the newest, like Japan's most scariest writer, things like that. And, you know, my boyfriend was like, Stephanie, it's so creepy. I think you'll love it. It's so scary. I read the thing and I'm like, honestly, not the scariest thing. And he's like, what? Like, he And he was like, just couldn't believe it. He was like, are you kidding me? It's terrifying, blah, blah, blah. And, and I just go, oh, I'll show you terrifying. And I made this short story just to spite him, I guess. What I was hell? like, here it is. This is what terrifies me. <laughs> and, and yes, he did read it and he I don't know. I, I haven't asked him if he, I, 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 that's a million dollar question. I have to ask him if he did actually think that it was scarier than Junji Ito's work that he's known. So I, I'll have to ask him and come back with an answer for that. But at the end of the day, he, I was like, did you like it? He's like, yeah, but you're a little sick puppy. Like that's his <laughs> softest and nicest way that he can say, I'm worried about you. And your your mental stability after writing this, dude. I I was shocked. I've known for a long time that you <laughs> oh like the my- dark stuff. No, not D- that you, you like the dark stuff. And I think oh, I do, I do. And it's funny because my dad, out of nowhere today, had found a short story that I wrote in 2010, and he read it out loud, and it was it was very familiar. And I'm listening to it and. And like I, I could not pin what I wrote because I used to write tons of short stories when I was younger, tons of it. So I couldn't pin exactly which one. And I even couldn't tell if it was me or not. And just pompously with all the clout, with being number one in that minute category, I just go, you know, I think it's me, but it could have been J.R.R. Martin. And my parents are like, just shut up. Just <laughs> shut up. Dude, 2010, how old are we? 12? Are you, and he read it, and I was like, you guys let me write this when I was 12? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it was called, like, Stranger in a Strange Place, and it was about a kidnapping, and it was oh, still God. terrifying even looking back at it. I'm like, and my dad's like, you wrote this when you were 12. I'm like, you should have been nervous. <laughs> you should have been <laughs> concerned. But, I mean, I turned out okay, I think. Many um, will disagree after reading Idol, but I, I feel cool. I think, so I've always liked the creepier stuff in terms of movies and books because I think at the end of the day, that's where we can experience those things. In no way, shape, or form do I ever want to experience a kidnapping, you know, a a stabbing, a, a psychological horror movie. But I feel like those movies, those books, those writings, that's what helps us experience those things without actually putting ourselves in danger or you know everything like that so I've always liked that because I always felt like it gave me some sort of like look into like you know I think as humans we're attracted to the things that we can't experience in life so that's why exactly. I've always been fascinated with like what you wrote like it, it just even in the past because you wrote some creepy things I've always <laughs> liked it because I'm like ooh. I get to be scared tonight, but then like nothing happens to me, you know. Oh, so Jesus Christ, I thought I saw a shadow in my room. Oh, I do this <laughs> shit to myself all the time. My curtain moved, and I was like, "Oh my god!" But um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But um, yeah. So with me also, so I will say as a disclaimer, this short story does involve. There's a lot in it. There's a lot of messed up things in there. There's sexual yeah. abuse and suicide as the main topic. But with anything, and I do want to make clear something I want to talk about because I noticed when people did read it that um, that they didn't necessarily grasp it, at least just from the people who I said. And I was like, did you realize what, what the point was? And essentially, the concept of suicide here and this whole concept of mashing it with the paranormal was to almost bring a new spotlight to how suicide is viewed. And not to say that suicide is changing, but to give, ooh, something, ooh, did you hear that? No. Oh my God, something beeped. I am just freaked out. I freak myself out with my writing. You have to relax after you write those something things. Something just beeped on my computer and it terrified me. Maybe we'll hear it in the audio, maybe not. But um, 
It, it, I never heard that beat before. Okay. Anyways. Um, so I discussed suicide in a way where I wanted people to look at this situation the main character is going through and just kind of see how everything is. It's kind of, it is a, not a morale. It's a different way to view suicide. I think, mm-hmm. I, and I thought I did, and, and you could chime in and say, well, I don't know about that stuff. Like, but essentially I wanted to do a new view on suicide and how it is viewed and to make it almost more empathetic and to make people understand exactly how suicide feels. Not everyone can relate it just in the, you know, in a normal way, but in a scripted situation like this, I wanted people to understand how this character got so far. Am I making sense? I think I am. Yeah, I think you are. I think I sort of, I, I have a very similar interpretation of it. Um, obviously you're the author. So like, if that's what it is, it's what it is. I'm not trying to dispute you at all. Everything uh, I, I write, think- I like to leave it to everyone's interpretation, just because I don't think there's any right or wrong answer in terms of a book or movie. No. And I think that you do shed a light of like, not a new way of viewing suicide, but sort of like what suicide has also branched out to be, especially, um, I guess in these times. And I do feel like the, your main character does a really good job at having us be like, like, wow, like I didn't think of it that way. Or like, wow, like I feel sad just to have empathy. So, um, the story is extremely scary, but I do feel like it's not just for the purpose of that. Like, I think there are good, there's a good lesson to learn from this. Yeah, I always try to make, whenever I write, I try to make everything as, you know, despite having a paranormal aspect and despite having things that may see out of touch. At the end of the day, I, and even I wrote this story gender neutral. You don't know if the main mm-hmm. character is a guy or a girl because it reads as if you're thinking about it, if that makes sense. It kind of reads as you're reading your own inner monologue. So right. I do that though because I want it to feel... And I don't do that for everything I write. Oh, sorry. I had too much Coke. I'm burping. Um, <laughs> but I essentially, I, I did it that way because I wanted people to extend their footing in empathy, like give people like almost like a, like an extra layer of like, like there's a bridge and then there's like a, a catch net. And that catch net was um, making it gender neutral. So people can kind of go over that bridge and further, assimilate themselves into the story and get this relation from it. I'm very proud of my work. And at the end of the day, I hope you read it. And you know, I mean, I I put this out there because I realized that it was missing from the world. And when I realize something is missing, I get this undescribable itch to make it and to put it out there because I know to me in my head um, that if I don't do it, no one else will. So I thought this was very to me, this was very important. I don't, I don't think it's by far my best work, I think, but at the end of the day, my heart is 100% in it. And I do think Mm. whether you're reading it for the scare or for what I'm saying, this hidden meeting in, I do recommend reading it. I mean, not just only because it's my own work. I mean, I I just think I conveyed a message in there very well. Yeah. Yeah. You guys go check it out. It's about two, $3 on Amazon. It's, you're, it takes 30 minutes to read. It's an amazing story. Thank you. I highly recommend it. I and like I it. said, I'll have the link available. I had it's a nightmare about it. <laughs> yeah, she texted me saying like, I had a dream. I was in the story. Yeah. So it's I'm really good. i sorry how to go through that. But uh, yeah, link will be in the bio. Uh, show some support. And if you do read it and you're listening to this, please go leave a review. Amazon has been a little weird though in terms of reviews. So just try it. If you're not able to do it, don't worry about it. But I've been having a hard time with people wanting to put reviews. So yeah, give it a shot and let me I've know tried six times and <laughs> they, they told me I'm blocked now. So if you guys could send a good word out for both of us, that'd be great. Read it. It's awesome. You won't regret it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And today I'm so happy we're going to be talking about this film because this film that we're talking about, I relate to immensely, especially now, because the film we're going to be talking about is called Eight and a Half. 
And before we get deep down into how I say I relate to this, Eight and a Half is an Italian film by director Federico Fellini and filmmaker. So he wrote and directed. And it stars Marcello Mastro Iani, Anouk Ami, Claudio Cardinale, um, and Sandra Milo. And essentially it's about a movie director retreats into his memories and fantasies when he does not know what his next project is going to be. Um, So this was a criterion pick because we do one criterion every week um i've told savannah before that this is probably i think in my opinion the best italian film ever made what did you think about the film savannah yeah so it was my first time watching it which is surprising because i'm a big marcello fan the italian king um but honestly it was probably one of the best italian films you're right about that it has this very untraditional storyline and I one of the best things I love about the film is you're in and out of the main character's mind a lot and Mm -hmm. you get to know your main character very very well um and I think the whole idea of a director struggling with his next project I don't think it's done enough and I think something like this needs to be done again, for sure. And that's where I say I relate to it. I posted my my thing two days ago. And b- when people buy it, before they've even read it, they're like, what's your next stuff? I'm like, read it first. <laughs> Let me know what you think and then tell me. Literally, after it's not even been 72 hours. And people are like, what's your next thing? And so I've, I've, and I've felt that pressure before in the past. And it's like, Jesus Christ, do I feel that pressure now? So I was so happy we're talking about it because not only do I love this movie, but right now, I, I, I mean, obviously, I don't, I'm not a f- film, big film director on a film set where hundreds of people are like, what's next? What's next? But I have a small morsel of a part of me going on right now that does relate to the character. I loved him. I don't think there's anybody that could have done it better than Marcello. He was so so like, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say real quickly. So his character's name is Guido and it's his last name in, um, and I always thought it was funny. They changed because I don't know if you guys know, but eight and a half was then uh, turned into a musical starring Daniel Day-Lewis called Nine. And they changed, which I don't understand, they changed the character's last name. It was Guido Anselemi was in Eight and a Half, but in Nine, it's Guido Contini. Is there a specific reason? I don't know why. If anyone knows, let me know. Because at first, because I was going to mention, like, because I knew about Guido Contini, and I was going to talk about how when I was first, you know, writing and, you know, things like that, like a while ago, I was considering of, of having like a pen name or like really like a, like a title name, like, or a star name. And one of, I was thinking of changing my last name to either Contini or to Visconti. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I was like 12. I was like, I'm going to change it to Contini or Visconti. I don't know why my 12 year old mind was like that. My my last name is just Conti. It's, it's what I want. (laughs) So um, but I, I was going over that and I was like, we talk, I thought this entire time his last name in eight and a half was Contini. So I was mm-hmm. very heartbroken to find out because no, no harm on Daniel Day-Lewis, but Marcella was my man. He's so I was, I was heartbroken to find out that his name didn't stick with Contini. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry about that. It's okay. It's okay. Tough times, you know? But, um, <laughs> I do love him in this movie. This is probably one of his best roles because I think the way and the way I interpreted this film is that Federico kind of made a movie about himself. And oh, absolutely. Based on himself. And I feel like I don't know if anybody has seen I know you have Mar- Marcello's movies, but especially um I've seen a lot of with him with Sophia Loren. A lot of the times he does play more what feels like bigger roles where he's more out there and he's more uh, even in La Dolce Vita I do feel like he definitely was more prominent in that film in terms of his acting but in this movie the one thing I loved is he played it so cool so nonchalant yeah when this guy is literally like going in and out of his head and that's another thing about the film that I loved like I will say part of it was really hard to follow 
when you know when he would go into his head and out of his head it, especially it towards the end a of the film. to realize it yeah it, it definitely takes a minute to realize especially like because you know it starts off in that dream sequence and we're like um what is going on and so then you you see that it's a dream but especially with claude the character that claudia cardinale plays it, yeah for me when i first watched it i had a hard time figuring out what her relationship was in this whole film and really it was just it, and it you, it does take a little bit to realize what is reality to him and what is just scenes playing out in his subconscious. And I think that's a big part of the film. And like, I'm going to be honest, my first time watching it, I don't know if I understood everything. And I know it's one of those movies that you probably have to see multiple times before you're kind of like, okay, I do get everything. Um, But yeah, Claudia's role in the movie confused me. If anything confused me in the movie, I didn't realize like she was like, and this is kind of how I'm interpreting it. If I'm wrong, Steph, let me know because I could use some clarity for sure. That that okay. was like, I guess, his ideal woman, right? Yeah, I I do think I think it was. I, I'm not, uh, I wouldn't use the word ideal woman, but on, on the same track, I think it was kind of like because I associate so much with this movie because mm-hmm. I I. I truly feel, even though I haven't directed big movies, like my heart tells me I am a director. My heart, soul, everything about me tells me I am a film director, the way my brain works and everything. So to me, him seeing Claudio Cardinale was not only like a a love fascination to him, but it was kind of like he just saw this woman and almost like in this minute, this woman became his muse and became like, and he just would reflect on her and see her face in his subconscious. Meanwhile, he never even knew the girl. Yeah, because I, I knew that this wasn't like somebody he had a relationship with. And the one thing about Guido in this movie is I interpret him as very, um, I don't want this to come off badly because I, because I, I, I do love his character, but I do feel like in the movie he is a very, he's sort of self-centered. Because yeah, if you if you watch how everyone else sort of, I guess interacts with him, how he interacts every to everyone else, he does lie a lot in the film, and yeah. there's a part where I believe it's his mistress is just like Guido, like tell me the truth, like mm-hmm. no more no more games, just tell me the truth. So I I I really like the complexity of the character because the whole time we're fascinated by how his brain works, fascinated by all these sequences. In reality, like, he is a very selfish, self-centered man that can't really distinguish what is reality anymore. Exactly. And I think also, you know, the whole premise is that, so Guido's character is a very successful film director, and he's going to make a project, and he won't tell anyone what it's about. He has actors, he has all this stuff, but he doesn't know what to do so you have like the and it travels through his subconscious but like you have the weight of everyone going what's next what's next and he's like i don't know but he really doesn't doesn't have the capability of saying i don't know because people expect so much from him and there's even a point in the film where they're like we have been working on this for four months already and it's not just something like you can say like i don't have a script i don't know what anything is about I'm just kind of coasting because that could be a huge, like, even though he could have been a a massive, massive director in this world, producers, he could, that could have been something blackballed. He could have been hated by um, producers and everything like that. So I think Mm -hmm. him switching in and out through this subconscious is, um, and through these dreams and these visions and memories and stuff like that, and these made up scenarios that he's created is all just him trying to figure out, okay, I don't have the inspiration. Let me find it within all of this yeah. and kind of imagine everything. That's a good point because most of his fantasies, if you notice, I saw it as like, okay, so everybody in his fantasy are his muses because his parents show up at one point and then his ex-wife shows up at one point and then his lover, the Claudia card, you know, all these people show up and I feel like it was just sort of everything that's ever inspired him in his life. Yeah, and I think it's also very reflective. I don't know too entirely much about um, Federico Fellini's personal life, but it does feel very reflective. Um, 
Yeah, it feels like, like a it, very it, personal film. Yeah, I mean, it, the title is called Eight and a Half because he had done prior eight movies and one short film. That is why the film is called Eight and a Half. So I think without oh, a doubt cool. saying it is reflective. Um, I don't know if all the characters, especially the mistresses and stuff like that, I don't know how true they were. Um, but I thought even today as someone like me who is who wants to direct and wants to create these pictures, it is so on point with a director's mindset, at least it's, it's very on point with how I carry my own thoughts, especially when I am writing. So Mm. I, I just love that interpretation and how solid it is and really how timeless his interpretation has been. Yeah. Um, even, um, and it's funny, you can see a lot of influences, even though this movie is not, it's, it's definitely different for its time, but it's not, experimental meanwhile a film like this is actually david lynch's favorite film of all time and when you hear that you can just see the influence Mm -hmm. like you can immediately go oh especially oh yeah the beginning scene um i want to talk about the beginning scene that opening of him having this nightmare i thought it was an impeccable setup for the film what did you think Oh, I think it draws you in completely because let's be honest, you don't know how you don't know what's going on at all. You, you have no idea what this person is doing. You you know, you kind of know what the movie's about, but for me it kind of just put me on my head. Because right after he's awake, he's doing something else. So I loved it and I think it's probably one of the best openings. Oh, and it's even though it's hard to interpret when you when you think about it more, it really is that whole dream is kind of like a predictive setup for what happens. He's in the yeah. car, all eyes are watching him, and gas comes into the car, and he seems in like he can't breathe with everyone on him. And then it turns into him flying high, and then out of nowhere, someone going, now you must fall, and then him falling. And I think it was a great, great representation for how he had everyone's eyes on him, he panicked, and then when he thought he was flying high, here he is now with nothing to write about, nothing to make in a movie, and this is his fall. And I thought that was just... There's also one scene that I found very haunting in this dream. It's very quick, but there's a scene where while Guido's in the car and he's looking around, did you notice the bus in that scene yeah yes yes i did and i thought it was one of the most creepiest things because everyone is on the bus standing with their arms out in the window and you only see their arms being pushed out i don't know why there's just something about that scene unsettling i it's very unsettling like it's even to a point where it's like i think it was a great interpretation of even behind closed doors or rather behind a bus um people are still looking at you. And I thought it, you know, it's only for a second, but there, that is probably my favorite scene. Like that image right there is my favorite scene in the entire film, just because it is like, I, that even though that dream sequence is unlike anything, just that picture of the people in the bus with their arms out, just it so unsettling to me, but I love it. I, I agree. Yeah, definitely. Um, what I wanted to say something about, um, okay. So what did you think of Marcello in the role of Guido? Fantastic. He's, I think also he plays a director very good because most directors are good people that have so much on their mind and people put so much on them. People think that directors are superheroes, at least for that time frame too. Everything, especially in Italian cinema, where if you look back at that time, you know you had uh, uh, Federico Fellini, Visconti, Pier, pa- Pier Paolo Pasolini, like th- those like that. They carried the entire weight of every single film that they did on their shoulders. And I've always felt like even while working on film set, like. That is still, it's not as intense, but that is still how everyone views everything. Mm -hmm. Like you can have producers, you can have higher ups, but at the end of the day, the entire weight of a film is mostly carried on the back of a director. 
Um, I loved how Marcello played him. Very cool. He was, and it was very realistic for a director where they're nice to people. They try to be nice to everyone. They try to give everyone their best attention because I think in order to be a good director, you have to be a sincerely empathetic person, especially with actors too. It's all about relating emotion. And if you're going to direct a movie, you have to understand emotion. You have to understand what you're reading and you have to understand how a human is going to interpret that on the screen. So I thought he was a great, 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 great representation of a director. And overall, he's just a fantastic actor. Um, Personally, my favorite role of him, I mean, I do love him in this, but he was in a um, adaptation of my favorite book, The Stranger by Albert Camus. And that's my personal favorite acting of his. Um, But I mean, I have a little bit more because like I said, I've had a film experience and stuff like that. As someone who doesn't have, even though you're a big, big movie buff and you know a lot about movies, how did you feel about a character like that and the representation of a director? Yeah, I, again, I don't know a lot about directing. Like, it's it's very, um, very limited knowledge. But the one thing that really, I guess, sold me on, um, I guess, his his portrayal of it there's a scene in the movie where they're all it was actually it was actually after the uh pulp fiction scene if you know what i mean yes it was actually during that time and everybody's trying to talk to him and everybody is just kind of like sort of like okay so what what is your movie about when when it's coming whatever this and that and during the whole dinner he's so calm and collective He's so, you know, he's he's kind of making it up as he goes in a way. Yeah. And I feel like as a director, not that we're, you guys are all just making it up as it goes, but you do have that talent of making people believe you, making people like, oh, wow, like that inspiration sort of you. So that's how I viewed him. And that's why I was just kind of like, that's awesome. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure as an, you know, he he's a fantastic actor, but sort of changing that mindset into, okay, I'm not an actor now. I'm a director, a filmmaker, a writer. I think he did an incredible job. I also liked how there's this, and everyone in this set, everyone who is around him kind of has this delusional expectation of what to put on him. And even so far to a point where there's a scene where he's going to meet a cardinal. But I felt, even though they're like, oh, the cardinal wants to see you, you have to be like this. It almost felt like everything the way, especially even with the Cardinal scene, I felt like it was a play on how everyone treated Guido like God, you know, like, oh, you have to meet him, like, oh, well, like, this is the Cardinal, but like, you know, it just, I thought that was, that might have not been the director's expectation or, you know, that might have not been his purpose of adding that in, but I I felt like it was a very good portrayal on how everyone viewed him as God. And there was even like when at that dinner scene you mentioned, there's this guy trying to talk to him about the difference between Marxism and Catholicism. And it just feels like it's almost, it almost feels like an atheist trying to challenge God. Like the way he comes across and like is starting to try like this fight uh-huh. with him and everything. I thought, and that, that was just something I, I felt the connection yeah. with. Do you, uh-huh. Could you see that? You know, you just brought it up and it makes sense. <laughs> no, that's a really good I, – I, I see what you're saying now because in the movie, I do feel like since it was my first time watching it, there was a lot going on. And one of the things I did catch though is during those scenes where I guess where he was challenged or there was just a lot of people coming at him, those were the scenes where he dissociated the yeah. most where like one, one one moment he's talking to somebody and they're trying to throw 50 things at him and the next scene is a dream sequence or a daydream sequence or something so i did realize during those hard questionings during those conversations most of the time the scene after that is a daydream sequence so i do yeah, feel like those and- were the moments where he kind of was just like would go back into that state would dissociate immensely. Yeah. Um. You know, it's funny. I just wrote because I think um. Also, Anuka Me did a, a great job, and even um. The woman who plays Carla, I thought she th- those two women, the the mistress and the wife, played yeah. 
great roles. I like them, especially um, what's funny is when I first watched the movie when I was younger, um, with the girl Claudia, whatever, she's go scoop, like, like gulp, but in Italian, it's scoop. <laughs> I used to all the time, like I would pet like my dog, like go from his forehead to his nose or from like his chest to his, his neck. And I would go scoop. Like I would do that for years to my <laughs> dogs. And I just had to talk about it. Cause I, 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 it just, at the time watching it, I was like, what the heck is scoop? And I looked up and it's like, it's the Italian version of gulp. And I, I just thought it was so funny. But one of the things I wrote here was there's the character oh wait hold on i gotta look at her name real quick uh da, 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 gloria yeah, i gloria. just wrote gloria was cracked out because <laughs> she was the most intense person in that film she's the young one who is in you know the scene that inspired the pulp fiction dance scene okay but we have to talk about that okay 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 well, you want to you want to address it mia wallace is that yeah. cracked out girl completely? Like, and, I, like, and I was surprised because I always knew the dance scene, the the five second dance scene in the movie is Pulp Fiction. I didn't yeah. know it was Mia Wallace. I didn't know yeah. Tarantino took that small character and was just like, "That's that's her." That's so interesting. It, it was, and especially like even with the look and the hair and a little she bit, was, of, like it, it just kind of took her out. Now, granted, the character Gloria was a very, very weird character. And out of everyone in that film, besides Guido, she stood out the most. Dude, because she was because probably on drugs. She was just weird. She was like this weird um, psych major writing papers. But for a psych major, she looked like she had tons of issues i'm not trying to be rude but like she would just freak out like she'd want to be this actress but everything was so immensely like every scene she was in she did something whether she'd scream and cry and be like get out of my face but it was just she was at a level 10 every and uh, the only time she wasn't was when she was like hi i'm gloria but then after that she, she was just leveled like 10 out of 10 cracked out the rest of the movie she looked like Mia Wallace yeah. when she was doing coke in the bathroom the whole <laughs> yeah. movie. So that's where I was just in there. I was just like, that's, I think that's a cool thing to see. Yeah. Because I, I didn't know that. I knew the dance sequence was from eight and a half, but I didn't know the whole character from what she wore, her hair, how she looked was from eight and a half. And even the way she talked, like, you know, like, the, even though, like, she didn't say, like, the full slang that Mia Wallace had, like, you know, no, Honey Bunny yeah. and, you know, all the talking like that, it still was, like, a more modernized version of her cracked out ways. Um, but I, 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 even though that character was weird, I enjoyed it. I mean, it did yeah. definitely added this bizarre sense to the entire film just with her like every scene she came in I was like oh my god what's next she's doing a weird little dance by herself and saying like like I I can't remember exactly what she said but it would just be as weird as like going like I feel like a butterfly and then like just doing like some weird dance she was a weird character but I did enjoy her a lot yeah she brought some life to the film um so I want to talk to you about this one scene Okay. The, one of the dream sequences before we move on. And it's pretty early on in the movie where Guido has a sort of a vision of his parents. Mm-hmm. And he hugs his mother and then his mom goes to kiss him. And when he pulls away, it's his ex-wife. Do we yeah. have any feelings about what that means? Because I was just kind of like, oh, mommy issues? Well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I didn't mommy know what it meant. Alert. Mommy issue alert. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's because I just felt like the dream sequences, especially that one, were very, very um, on purpose. Well, I also questioned myself because here's the thing. Um, because, yeah, I, I thought that, too. But remember, he has flashbacks to when he was a kid and his mother wasn't there. So, I, yeah. So Mom, I wondered I don't if know. woman... If this woman who he kept seeing as his mother was not his mother, but what he thought would have been, because every time she, because she would like, she, uh, I think like she was like over his grave, like in one sequence and was like, oh, my son, my son, my son. Meanwhile, when he was a little boy, you didn't see that. You saw him sleeping in what I thought was an orphanage. 
Yeah. So I, I, it was definitely confusing. It was maybe it was something that like he wanted, or maybe I thought it was something he found in his ex-wife and that's what that meant. And then also, so in that scene, like, cause they kind of replay the, the memory of him in the orphanage. And I could be wrong about orphanage. That's just what I'm assuming. Right. Um, but they replay that. But then with all the women in his life and who do you see his wife is playing the role of the caretaker that he had in this orphanage. Yeah. Is it his wife or his act? No, I think it's, it's his wife, right? Am I, I yeah, it's his wife. Ex? Okay. All right. It's his it's wife. It's his wife. But it, it, she, she takes this. I think it also is just a representation of, you know, usually in anyone's life, their mother is stereotypically, the mother is the representation of how to grow. And, I think he would imagine his wife not in like a creepy way to be no, his no, no. mom, but like in a way where it's like she, he she was the biggest figure in his life and put him on this track because it seemed like they were together before he became a big director. So yeah. that is what I thought was the little difference was that she was kind of like also in a, in a similar way, like kind of making her home like a, a representation yeah. of home. Just like a substitute for the love that he never gotten. Or like she showed him what love was. So that's kind of how I interpret that. But again, I do feel like there were a lot of heavy symbolisms in a lot of the, you know, what I want to say it's daydreams. Is that correct? Like daydreams, dreams? Yeah. Daydreams. Yeah, I think that's and a I, really good example. I think this movie is very like there it has a lot to it and I definitely want to watch it again in the future because I I don't think I caught everything for sure. Yeah, it, there's a lot. There's a lot I think it's like a two and a half hour film but there's a lot to this especially with those dream sequences because there's no, you know, obviously there's no title that says like this is a dream. Like there's none of that. You just got to kind of figure it out as along the way. Um but I I I love the dream sequences because Especially, um, I thought Claudio Cardinale represented what he thought was the answer to his problem was. Right. And that's why she kept visiting him in like these uh, daydreams where she's like, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And it's kind of, I thought it was like the manifestation of thinking that he was, that this, she was his answer. Like he just saw her and was like, the answer is within her. Meanwhile, it's like, how can you find the answer within her if you don't know her? Exactly. And I, I, it just created this huge idea that she was the answer. And even in the end, too, when – and even still, the one scene where she's wearing that black frock <laughs> with the, the feathers and everything on it, I, too, still had a hard time deciphering if that was reality or – a daydream. I personally assume that scene was a daydream because I don't understand how she went from serving everyone holy water to now here I am in this gorgeous frock and I know you all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. I, I think most – yeah, so she I, – I do like what she represented. And I think it, it, it sort of – even back then, it talks about the trope of like, oh, this – you know, a lot of movies have this like, oh, this woman's going to come into my life and change it and make me better. And and she's going to be, like you said, the answer to all my prayers. When in reality, it's definitely just a coping thing. Absolutely. Now, there is, I think one of the best sequences aside from the intro in this film is the scene where Guido is in his subconscious and he is surrounded by all the ladies in his life. What did you think about that scene and what did you think it really stood for? You know, it's hard because I, I, I think you can interpret that scene in a lot of ways. Um, personally, I think he kind of had to come to like, I, let's be honest. He wasn't the most clean cut guy in terms of ladies. He had a no. mistress and then he was falling in love with this woman he saw on the street. So I think, Part of me feels like that scene represented like, okay, like at some point you have to come to terms to what you did and how you treated all these women, these women. And at some point I do feel like all these women were muses in his life too for, you know, yeah, 
Definitely. And I also think one of the things, because I, I wondered, and I just, I, I think I put it together now, because I was wondering, as honest as a man as this guy claimed to be, and as nice as he was, like, to his friends, even though he did lie, but, like, in terms of, like, characters and how honest he was with himself, I think I realized the ultimate reason why he could never be honest with his wife, because obviously he was cheating on her with Carla, another yeah. uh, a married woman. And I think the reason why he couldn't say it was because in reality, it was like, even though he was sleeping with Carla, at the end of the day, Carla wasn't the biggest issue. It was this fascination of Claudia, Claudia yeah. Cardinale. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do you admit that? How do you admit, like, I saw this woman. She gave me holy water. I drank it. Now I'm in love with her. Like, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about her. So I thought that was maybe one of the reasons why. He never came to terms with his wife and kind of just said, hey. And I think also his wife knew him the best and kind of just realized, like, he's in love with something unintangible. Mm. And, like, at the end of the day, even though he had cheated, and obviously I am not condoning Guido's actions in any sense of the way. Guido's trash for that. Oh, trash. Um, But I think at the end of the day to her, it it, kind of didn't matter that he slept with Carla because at the end of the day, he didn't even know what he wanted. And it was just kind of like an impulse. I mean, at least I think she saw it. And and I'm going back to like an old school way of thinking where it's like in her head, she's going, Oh, at least he didn't want to be with her. She just, he just was with her at Mm -hmm. one point. Is that making sense? I think it is. Yeah. And I think towards the end of the movie, uh what's the message mistress name carla carla is the wife or the mistress the the scoop which girl the scoop or the the claudia no no scoop carla carla yeah carla i think towards the end of the movie she does figure out that like if i'm not mistaken that like something's wrong and and that's where the scene where she's just like wait i'll tell me the truth you know and like yeah she's thinking it's bad for her in a way she's trash too because she's cheating but like she really is just there yeah and i think also she's kind of at a point where she's like oh she's thinking you were sleeping with me because you missed your wife meanwhile like i had said i think he couldn't even tell her because it wasn't even that it was this idea this floating idea of claudia cardinale's character which Mm -hmm. by the way Fun fact, she's like one of the build most build characters in that list, like most build actors, and she's only in it for less than eight minutes. Well, she was a big name back then, right? She was in something else. Yeah. That. She had she was in a lot of Italian films. She was in a lot of Visconti f- films. Yeah. Um she, The Leopard and uh, Rocco and his brothers, to name a few. She's, she was beautiful too. Mm-hmm. Like stunning. So I also think the scene where it kind of recreates his life in this orphanage. I thought it was fantastic. And obviously everyone has their own interpretation to this, but this is what I thought that entire scene meant. Cause it was a nice hearty long scene. Not only did it show his relationship with women, it really right. mostly pinned in on the fact with how he thought they viewed him. Mm, so okay. the women in his daydreams, started turning against him when the insecurity of not being a good director got to him. I don't know. Like, I just felt that because they're at the scene at the table and they all just kind of look at him and they're like, oh, get out, get out. And then he takes like this whip and he starts. And I thought it was a representation of him getting like his confidence in being a director. It it didn't because the way that these females acted, they didn't act like how they did the rest of the bill. They didn't act how they did in the reality sense. They had like the same tropes, but you know, like the wife, the wife wouldn't have been slaving over him like that. Same with Carla, same with everyone else. It just, it just felt like his way of how he uses women to feel about himself and his own security as a good director or a good man. I think that's a I think that's a great interpretation of it. Um yeah, I again, it was one of those scenes where I definitely was more confused. Um so I I didn't really form an opinion on it, so I don't have much too much to say about that, but 
I think, you know, that definitely like, helps. I, I've watched this film several times and it, and I had to read other people's reviews in order to kind of not only see what other people thought, but to create my own opinion on it. It's mm-hmm. definitely something you've got to watch, you know, at least twice to kind of just muddle through it. But at, at the end, I think in his world, ladies did not represent who they were. They just represented different aspects of his life that he wanted. I like that. And I feel like a lot of movies do that, you know, where they take mm-hmm. a they take a woman and they kind of put her in the perspective of a male and what she means to a male. I mean, it's definitely yeah. a trope. And I like that this movie did something really unique with that. One of the other things I did enjoy about this was I enjoyed the scene with Saragina. There's just something about that scene I thought was so different and I like this character and I thought it was pretty funny how like they created this like real I'm gonna use the word whorish for lack of a better <laughs> word you know she wore, she wore the skirt she had the crazy eyebrows and even in one scene like it shows like because in the beginning before you even meet Saragina he's painting Carla's eyebrows to make her him right. look, to make her look like him or look like her so, but I enjoyed the scene with Saragina. I just thought it was so weird how it was filmed and the music too. Um, oh, the music in the movie is really good. All the classical which, music. Don't don't get me wrong. I love my boy Nina Rota, but we got to talk about this real quick because I wrote it in big letters. I'm all a fan for reusing, but someone had to stop Nino Rota. <laughs> for what? Because I want you to think about so with Nina Rota, he liked to, in my opinion, recycle his stuff. And oh. I saw that not only within this film, I saw it within Rocco and his brothers. And if Nino was around, I'd be like, homeboy, can we talk about this? <laughs> because I am obsessed with the Godfather soundtrack and it's all the same tones. It's the same beat. If you play out the beat to eight and a half and the beat to Godfather, Godfather is just slowed down in a different key. Oh, I see what you're saying. I mean, I was just talking about like the classical, like the the classical music element was fantastic. Yeah, I just wanted to put no. Yeah. Because like in eight and a half, it's but in Godfather, it's it's the same. And so I'm going crazy while watching this the second time because now I know I'm like this is just the Godfather. This is just the Godfather soundtrack. You know, like literally, it just it. I do love the soundtrack no matter what. I I still listen to the soundtrack all the time. It was just driving me crazy because I'm like, Nino, you were so talented. Why did you recycle the same notes? <laughs> like, please. And he also did it in Rocco and his brother. I, I saw Rocco, Rocco and his brother yeah. has the same thing too. I, I could hear Rocco's and his brother. I could, definitely. Um, yeah, so. I just got heated. I'm sorry. Nino I love Nino. Nino. I love Nino Rotan. I have like disc and I have uh, vinyls and stuff like that of his soundtrack. But that was just the one thing. I'm like, I did enjoy it. I thought the soundtrack worked, but I was like, homeboy, it's the same. <laughs> um. Well, why don't we talk about the ending now? Okay. So for those who don't know, the ending, lighthearted. Lighthearted as can be. Music plays, awesome. everyone ends, they're holding hands, you know, dun, 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 dun. you know, they're playing the, that Godfather beat. They're playing that music all throughout. Everyone just holding hands, running around in a circle, la-di-da. What did you think, for your first time seeing this, what did you think that meant? I was confused because the tone totally shift. Uh, yeah. um, I, I assume that happy ending obviously I would hope it was a happy ending but I think at one point that Guido does kind of metaphorically like shoot his ego like just get rid of his ego and realize that everything he's needed his muses everything he's been looking for is not in his head you know not on these make-believe dreams not on these fantasies but like right in front of him and I think he, in a way, he's finally made peace with that. But again, 
I don't know. I'm not like very, very sure in the interpretation because for me, the whole tone of the movie did shift at the end. A very dramatic shift for me, at least, watching it. Yeah. I I, I thought the ending was a daydream of his. And I, I totally agree. I think it was his realization of having to come with terms that the people that he that are in his life are the way that they are. There's no manipulating them like yeah. how they do in his sub in how he does in his daydreams. And I think it also represents the fact that no matter what, end of, at the end of the day, whether or not he had something, he was still a good director and he was still tethered to all of these people. Right. Um, and I actually read there was so this whole set that they were at in the end was supposed to be like they were constructing a spaceship that was supposed to be in the film. Uh-huh. And supposedly the first cut of the ending was him and his wife going in the spaceship. Okay. Which I thought like, I've been like, you know, shooting off to the moon. I'm happy he stuck with this because I loved how it was filmed. I love how you just had everyone holding hands and going around. And it also, if you look, there's not like it brought a lot of elements from all of his films and everything, I just like how cohesive it felt. Like, you saw clowns and you saw mimes and stuff like that, which, La Strada, like, you saw a lot of things that mm-hmm. he had brought from elements of his other films. And I think, in the end, the end just kind of submit like, his own feel. Like, he was like, okay, for my eight and a half film, what am I going to do? And I think the ending is just him going, I have an idea. I'm going to make a movie about me not being able to write. And I think that ending is his way of showing like in the end everything came together. Yeah. With all the people around me, this is this is what it was. So I, I totally agree with what you have said. And I I love the ending too. I love it. I loved how it was filmed, especially like with the little with the drumming and the trumpets and stuff. <laughs> and you have that little drummer boy in the spotlight. I loved it. I think, you know, after watching this movie I do think there needs to be more films about like the creative process and something that's real not like oh I have writer's block like no like I I think that this movie does a really good job at like not only seeing the struggle of coming up with a new idea but like also the pressures around you because you don't I at least I haven't seen a a movie like this ever that goes only one would be nine which would have been the musical adaptation which I'm sorry but I refuse to see, but you bet your darn bottom, I still listen to the Fergie song in that soundtrack. That's the only oh, thing. I don't think I'm going to Is that where that's from? Be Italian, yeah. Oh. She was Serena. Oh, well, that says enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I totally agree. There needs to be a lot more, especially, I think, whether it be focused on an actor or a writer or producer, you kind of see people always, people show the struggle of getting into Hollywood, but they don't ever show the struggle of maintaining Hollywood, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, making more films about that or around the subject of that. The only other thing um, I can, it it really doesn't work, but for some reason it came to my mind. There's this, um, oh shoot, what's his name? I see his face in my head. (laughs) Guy from There Will Be Blood, not Daniel Day-Lewis, the young guy. Paul Dano. Paul Dano, thank you. Mm-hmm. He's in this movie um, uh, with uh, the the granddaughter of Ilya Kazan. I, I forgot her first name. Um, but it, it kind of is similar where he has this, like he's a, he's a acclaimed writer who has, you know, a certain expectation of himself. And one of the characters that he ends up writing about becomes to life so that's the only thing that comes to my mind in terms of something newer good movie something newer that comes into play but there hasn't been anything like eight and a half since eight and a half i do think there was maybe a few like french new wave films that kind of grazed over that subject but nothing today nothing today do you see anything like this Mm -hmm. all right so what what uh rating do we give this movie even though it's fitting, giving this eight and giving this film eight and a half would be a crime. I wanted it. Um, <laughs> it's a crime. Uh, so think if you are going to say eight and a half, oof, I, it has to be at least a nine. But I, I say I would give it. Um, 
9.6 resonates. What about you? I was going to give it a nine. A nine? Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, there you guys have it. Um, Hope you enjoy. Oh, always, always shout out to homeboy James. James. Thank you, James. Um, So, yeah. So, um, before we wrap things up entirely and say our final adieus, um, so what else, Savannah, are we going to be talking about this week? So what are we talking about tomorrow and Sunday? Uh, next time you hear us, we should be talking about Under the Son of Satan. Ooh, my Another pick. Another criterion. And then I think the last one would be my pick, uh, A Streetcar Named Desire, a good old classic. Classic. A classic. So, um... Tune in and make sure you guys get the uh, movies. And like, if you haven't seen, especially if you haven't seen A Streetcar Named Desire, what are you doing with your life if you haven't seen A Streetcar Named Desire? <laughs> You're but, late to the game. Oh, so late to the game. I mean, to be fair, when I was a Marlon Brando fan, I was late to the game. I was like 70 years late. But whatever. All right, but you know, if, if you're, I can't oh, blame myself age. for not being born. I can't be I blame myself for not being born during his time. And it's prime Brando. Just, just so you guys know prime time brando oh, well i mean here's the thing no, i go not against your prime brain. not your prime stephanie I- <laughs> prime brando will always be last tango in paris in my opinion but everyone yeah. will disagree with that i know i know but um yeah so thank you to james and if you're interested in idol the link will be down below and there's no other announcement so yeah we're done <laughs> um Thank you for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.